So, uh, Uncle Ray finished up chapter 13 last So, we'll continue on to uh, chapter 14, logically speaking. So, before we begin looking at the text, let me go ahead and read. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses today, and then we'll finish up the rest of the chapter here in a few weeks. But let me go ahead and read the first 13 verses. I think it's kind of a logical break after the 13th verse, and then we'll go back and uh, start from the beginning. Romans 14, verse 1, and Paul says this, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, he eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, and give and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose again and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So a couple of things you'll notice here as we look through these um, 13 verses is there is a little redundancy in the Apostle Paul's example. So we won't go verse by verse here, but we'll take them in chunks and look at them accordingly. But I do want to uh, just give a brief background of what my uncle talked about last week because I think it applies to chapter 14. And specifically verses 11 to 14 of chapter 13. Looking back a few verses in chapter 13, verse 11 is pivotal. It's a pivotal verse for the remainder of the chapter 13 and also the whole of chapter 14. And it reads this, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of your sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. With this in mind, it would be beneficial for the Christian to remember the salvation they have through Christ will be completed by him at some point in the future. So this is the ultimate goal. And from this verse, I think, stems the rest of chapter 13 and also chapter 14. Keeping the primary thing in mind here is that the salvation that we have, the imminent return of Christ, is nearer than when we first believed. Obviously, it's nearer than when 
the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Church of Rome, and tomorrow it's going to be near. So when we're discussing and having opinions of ourselves with our brothers and sisters, as we'll see, keep in mind that the ultimate goal is the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. Keep that principally in your mind. And then he says in verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then verse 13, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in strife and envy. And let's just point out a word here in this verse 13 that I think is applicable to chapter 14. It's the word strife. The word strife, and Strong's defines it as a quarrel, a wrangling, contention, debate, a variance. So Paul is warning his readers here, the church at Rome and others in the area, do not be full of strife or pettiness, as it were. Paul warns Titus in Titus three nine, excuse me, in Titus chapter three verse nine, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So Paul's warning to Titus is to avoid these vain stri- uh, strifes and controversies inside of the church, because they're not profitable for us. We are to put on. Christ. And finishing on verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So how are we able to accomplish this? Because Christ is inside of us. We are to put on Christ. Albert Barnes in his commentary says here, the Greek writers speak of putting on Plato, of Socrates, meaning to take them as instructors, to follow them as disciples. Thus, to put on the Lord Jesus means to take him as a pattern and a guide to imitate his people. He was temperate, chaste, pure, peaceable, and meek, and to put him on was to imitate him in these respects. So finishing chapter 13, we are supposed to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that in our mind, we now address chapter 14. Again, keeping the peace that Christ had and was. So I think the first 13 verses, um, not according to my own opinion, but to the commentators, is that really Paul splits up this section and really makes two general arguments. And I wrote them up on the board with Gary's mega-sized marker. I hope you can see it a little better. I can certainly see it, but I'm only two feet away from it. So if you have any issues, I'll, I'll read them out. But We have the first argument, really I think is the first seven or eight verses here, is that we have to keep in mind, Paul wants his audience to keep in mind, that when we're having discussions of differing opinions inside of the church, let us remember that the other person is a believer. So they are a brother and sister in Christ. And then point two, as we'll see getting later on into the chapter, is that we all have to stand before Christ on the day of judgment. So keep these two things in mind as we go through here. Looking at verse 1, Paul instructs his audience, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Weak in the faith. What's that mean? The assumption here from the apostle is that there are some Christians who are 
There are a lot of Christians who you would say average, and then there are some who are also weaker in the faith. And if you remember chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says this to his audience. He says, I say through the given to me, to everyone who is himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, listen here, for God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So that would imply that each person has been given a different measure of faith, a different capacity. So I think Paul's instruction here in verse 1 is that those who are stronger in the faith receive the weaker vessel, the weaker brother and sister. It is all over the place. No one is, no one's the same across the board, whether it's in the business world, whether it's intellectually, whether it's in the church. There are some people that are more gifted than others in certain areas. So we're supposed to, if we're more, I should say, intellectually or more, have more faith, as it were, we're supposed to receive or to understand or sympathize with the weaker brother and sister, especially when we're arguing or addressing opinions, as we'll see here as we get through the section. And he says in verse 2, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Verse 3, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. For God has received him. That's the important part, I think, of verse 2 and 3. What Paul is talking about here is that these issues are non-foundational issues that are being debated or squabbled with inside of the church. What is important to remember if we have an issue that is non-foundational with a brother and sister is that you can disagree on a subject, but you remember that they are a child of God elect by him. And I think going back to chapter 13, 11 to verse 14, that's important to remember. Put on Jesus Christ. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. With that in mind, we should be able to remember that the person that we're disagreeing with inside of the body of Christ is still a child of God. They are elect by Him. And I think with that perspective, it may change the way we go about talking to our brothers and sisters in Christ inside of the church of Christ. Now, you'll see here at the end is that I don't think that Paul is saying here is that there should never be any disputes or squabbling. But again, what he's talking about, as we'll see as we go through the remainder of these verses, is these non-foundational issues. These are issues that should not necessarily separate and destroy the fellowship and relationship that brothers and sisters have in Christ. This is not denying the Trinity. This is not denying the fact that salvation is by faith alone. Important, substantive issues like this. This is about what we eat and what we don't eat. In verse 4 he says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. In such matters, you do not have a right to pass damnable judgment on matters that are not of eternal importance. And why is that necessary here? Why? is because God is able to make him stand. If it's approvable, he will be made to stand by the Lord. If it is not, he will fall 
at or during the Lord's time. So if what the member is doing is not correct, then the Lord will bring about proper punishment. If it is correct, then God is able to make that individual stand. So I hope you see as we're coming through here, is again, these are not issues of eternal life and death. These are more personal issues that we'll get on to here. And just let me address this real quick, and we'll stop for, uh, stop for comments or questions. In verse 5, and I think this is really the crux of the matter, is we have to keep in mind the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the early church in their respective backgrounds. And I think that's what Paul really is addressing here. In here, we see this language. So, for example, perhaps the Jew, from his former faith, his former religion, liked to keep certain holy days that had been uh, prescribed as before. There's really nothing wrong with that. While the Gentile believer, as he has cast off the works of, really, the devil and of Satan from his previous beliefs or religion, did not like to keep his former holy days or former meals or feasts. There was nothing inherently wrong with that, and Paul was trying to get to the people of the Church of Rome and also to us, is that people may do things differently, but what's important is that they're doing it to the Lord. Let me give you these examples from MacArthur. I think they're very helpful. This one is in Colossians. He says this, Paul says this to the church at Colossae, uh, Colossians two sixteen to 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The things which are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul was telling them that the seasons and the festivals that you celebrate is nothing inherently wrong if it, the substance belongs to Christ. All right? So we have one example. Look at Galatians, which I think is an example against Christ. And if you remember in Galatians, Paul was addressing the Galatians, to the fact that they were telling the Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised to be believers. So keep that in mind as we read this. Galatians 4, 9 to 10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So on the surface, this appears contradictory. How is it that in one section in the Colossians that Paul could tell the church at Colossae that they're able to celebrate these seasons, these days, these Sabbaths, if the substance is in Christ, but he tells the Galatian church, you're backsliding. You're going back to the elementary principles that you once were. And I think, again, it has to deal with whether it's foundational or it's non-foundational meaning it's orthodox or not orthodox. So maybe in the the example of Colossians is that these people in this church just like to celebrate, maybe they were Jews, they like to celebrate some of the feasts that were in the Old Testament. It added nothing to their salvation. It certainly took nothing away from their salvation. But that being said with Galatians, as we know in Galatians is again the Jews, Paul, or excuse me, Peter and Barnabas were even carried away with this. And Paul had to go to them and say, look at here, what you're doing is not proper. 
It's not justification by faith plus circumcision. That's the issue here. Is if you're adding anything and you're telling or prescribing someone something plus their faith, that's how you're justified, that's wrong. Does that make sense? Paul is telling the church of Galatians, you cannot tell someone they have to do something plus their faith to be saved. That's not correct. Those are the elementary principles that Paul is talking about here. And I thought uh, MacArthur was very beneficial there in giving those two examples. One is non-foundational, meaning one is not in the realm of salvation, while the other one was having to do with salvation, meaning you had to be circumcised to be saved. So I hope that's uh, clear for everyone. If anyone has any comments or questions, you can certainly say them now. Correct, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think from Paul's example here, like in verse 2, if someone wants to eat vegetables, then they can eat vegetables. But it's not for the other person that eats meat and vegetables necessarily to judge them as being improper. Does that make sense? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you kind of use an example of our current culture, Christmas. I mean... Yes, I mean, was Jesus born December 25th? Probably not. He was probably born in the spring sometime. And you see, there are some pagan or uh, non-Christian things that have obviously been sucked into Christmas, but the vast majority of us in here still celebrate Christmas. So I think that's kind of the that Paul is getting is, none of us are perfect, but it's not necessarily of eternal. And that's what Paul wants us to keep in mind. Yes, Becky. Correct. I don't think I have it in here. It may, we may talk about it uh, the next time we're in here. But I think it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, is that there were some individuals, former pagans, that had an issue with eating meat that was offered to idols. And Paul's point is like, well, an idol's nothing. It's just a block of wood. But don't destroy... If, you're, if you think it's nothing, don't destroy the issue that you have with your brother you know, over something of whether eating meat or not. And I think what's important to keep in mind here, too, is, again, I think we'll talk about this later, but receive one who is weak in the faith. I think Paul was saying here is that those who are strong in the faith, the burden is upon them. The burden is upon them to really be the bigger brother or bigger, bigger sister. If you have a squabble or an issue, 
beat upon you to say, is this, is this of eternal significance or is this a personal issue? So keep that in mind also. And then verse 8. So again, I said there's a couple of repetitive things here. I think verses 5, 5 and 6, Paul's using different examples to prove the same point. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. Again, a reminder that each of us is the Lord's and we are his individual workmanship. And Paul reminds the church of Philippi, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will, com- uh, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Excuse me, that's verse 8 also. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. So 7 and 8 are together. So let's look here. That was really the first, um, down to verse 8, that it's a reminder that these squabbles that we have inside of the church, each is a believer. And I'm not, at the end of this here, in the last five minutes, there are times where we will have issues with brothers and sisters inside of the church. So don't feel like I'm neglecting that. I'll get to that here at the end and probably the next time that we, that we meet with one another. Um, but looking here at verses 9 to 12, Paul turns this a little bit. He says, for, uh, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. For why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What is the end that, Christ, or that Paul is talking about here? It's the verity, the truth, that Christ purchased us with his blood. That is why he died. Again, it's to remember and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is supposed to be the forefront of our mind with anything that we're doing inside of the church. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? A reminder, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. To judge. The judgment you bring down upon your brother is something that he may not actually answer for on the day of judgment in front of Christ. Keep that in mind. Something you may think your brother is doing wrong is actually something he may not have to answer for on the day of judgment. Think for a second. If you take issue with something of your brother or sister in Christ and what they're doing, is it something that they may be answered for on the day of judgment? I think that's a striking question that we can ask ourselves the next time we have an issue with something our brother and sister are doing that we disagree with. Is it something that they'll answer for in front of Christ? And then we're really turned here already to argument two, the day of judgment. Some Christians may be under the misguided notion that believers will not face a day of judgment or a day of reckoning. It is true we will not stand condemned before Christ on that day, but there is language in the New Testament to insinuate that we will still answer for the things that we have done and have not done in the flesh. First example is 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. Paul is warning the church at Corinth. He says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. You see that? Is that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, not condemn, but we will answer for the things that we've done for in the flesh. And I don't think that's necessarily the pinnacle or crux of Paul's point here, but that whatever your brother or sister is doing that you don't agree with or you think is wrong, they will or will not answer for it on the day of judgment. I think it goes back to verse or excuse me, chapter twelve, where Paul again warns the church of Rome, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God will give out accordingly. Romans two sixteen, again, I think this has to do with every person, believer and unbeliever. On that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. Again, as Christians, we do not stand condemned. Rather, we stand justified, thank the Lord. But we will still give an account for our deeds and our actions. And Christ said so in the positive note. He said, I can't remember the specific chapter of Matthew, but he said, a cup of cold water will certainly have its reward. And I think that's pertaining to the day of judgment where we will be rewarded for the things that we have done in this life from the grace that God has given to us. And then verse 11, familiar words, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Same language that Paul used in Philippians chapter 2. Just a reminder of our role, and the role of Christ as supreme sovereign judge. And then verse 12, So that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, let me go ahead and read what Joseph Benson here said. He said, Hindering him... In his way to heaven. Let us do nothing, how indifferent it may be in itself, which may tend to prejudice, discourage, or mislead any other Christian. Especially let us not, by an unseasonable use of our Christian liberty, induce him to act against his conscience, or with a doubting conscience, or unnecessarily move him to hate or judge us. Again, I think it's the duty of the stronger brother to do that to the weaker member of the faith. Do not cause a reaction for things that are of not eternal significance. Meaning, if someone wants to eat vegetables, maybe you just let them eat vegetables. I mean, that's not me. I'm, I'm not eating vegetables only. I like some meat thrown in there. But I digress. Now, there are some important connections that have to be made here. Again, I said we get to it. Paul is not telling his audience to never say anything to a brother or sister about an issue. That's not what he's saying. And I think oftentimes people can go to that extreme by saying, well, I'm not going to make my brother mad or upset. I'm just not going to say anything to him. And as I read before in the, in the start about Christ, Albert Barnes, when he had said that he was temperate, that is, Christ was temperate, chaste, pure, peaceable, and meek, and to put him on, we're to imitate Christ. That's obvious, that's clear. But I want to remind us, I want to remind myself and also the audience, I don't know if that's proper, I want to remind us, myself and also the audience, of John chapter 2. And there are times when you have to get down into the nitty gritty of the church. Sometimes there are difficult things and difficult issues that you have to raise inside of the church that are foundational, that are of eternal significance. And again, we remember what Albert 
Barnes said of Christ is that he was meek, he was peaceable, he was humble. But remember this. Remember what uh, the Lord Jesus did in John chapter 2. In fact, he did this twice. Let me read verse 13 to 17. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the ox and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remember that, I was, that as it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Christ was eaten up with zeal for and with the things of God which drove him to righteous indignation. Now, there are very, 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 very few times I would say we actually have righteous indignation. We don't have perfect righteous indignation that Christ did. But there are times where you have to stand up with squabbles and disagreements inside of the church and actually make the truth known, even if it does divide. Now, there are four considerations that I try to come up with. If anyone else has an additional one, then please feel free uh, to raise your hand or say something afterwards. But really four, four examples of ways or times when there are times for disagreements inside of the church or with another brother and sister in Christ. First one, and this is really going back to chapter 13, does it violate the first great commandment? Does it in any way malign or blaspheme the name of Christ and God? Meaning, is something that is being done that you have to deal with, is it maligning God? We read here in Revelation 16, 8 and 9, The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Verse 9, Men were scorched with the fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him the glory. So, in times, you have to stand up. We are to defend the name of God, even if it is a disagreement. Now, I'd say it's probably few and far between where brothers and sisters in Christ actively blaspheme the name of God amongst one another. But there are occasions where the name of God is maligned. And it's not just using the Lord's name in vain. I would say it's um, really not keeping his commandments. I think the first five commandments of uh, the the Ten Commandments, we probably blaspheme God far more than we think, just in our thoughts and our actions. So, the first matter of conflict or of addressing a brother and sister, does it malign the name of God? Second one, is it a matter of salvation? Now, this is an important one. Is someone denying orthodoxy? Paul in Galatians clearly knew that the church of Galatia was violating this salvation commandment. They were adding to salvation. This is a case to come to blow inside of the church. That does mean that we have the authority and the right to disagree with people like Roman Catholics over their view of salvation. It's incorrect. People who deny or challenge doctrines such as justification, the Trinity, perseverance, I would even say baptism. I would even say you have a right to debate or you know, argue with a pedo baptist about their view of baby baptism. 
Now, I still think they're brothers and sisters in Christ, but I think that's something that we're able to engage in in the body of Christ and not be in violation of what Paul's here saying about being at peace inside of the church. And number three is a little harder um, because I think this is more... This is more opinion, but I think there are times when you can say something if it's going to detrimentally harm the church. Now, I think this could be for financial reasons. This could be for uh, spiritual reasons. Again, I think this one's a little bit more nebulous, and I think there is some liberty here. But does it actively, or is what someone's doing inside of the church causing harm to the body of Christ? Maybe that is some time where you do not have a peaceable situation. So again, this is not an all-encompassing list. This is not something I'm saying it's completely black and white. But just a list that I've compiled here this week. And if anyone has anything else to add, please feel free. Or any disagreement, please don't hesitate to say something. Now or after. And then finally, I think the last one, as I think is very important, has there been sin against you? And again, this is just a reminder. This is just a reminder. Has there been sin against you? Uh, If you remember in Matthew 18, Jesus gives the orderly way in which if we feel that we've been sinned against by brother or sister, we're supposed to go to them. If they don't hear us, take someone else. If they don't hear both of us, then we bring them before the church. And then if they don't hear the church, then they're to be cast out as a tax collector. So if someone has sinned against you, or you feel that they've sinned against you, I think it's your prerogative, it's your duty, even if it does not create a peaceable situation, to confront that individual with their wrongdoing. 2 Corinthians 2.10, Paul says this, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Again, the presence of Christ, remembering that Christ is the chief arbiter here in our disputes and our squabbles. And this is very difficult. This is not easy stuff. I mean, we know plenty of examples. You know, a a Bible chapel, every church you go to. Who is it? Spurgeon said that if you find a church that's perfect, don't let me know because I'll go and ruin it. And that's a perfect example of it. Is every single one of us in here sins? Breaking news. You know, we're going to have petty squabbles. But Paul, his emphasis here is that really consider and think about what you're going to say to your brother and sister before you do it. Is it a matter of eternal significance? Is it not a matter of eternal significance? And I think by doing that, it's going to really check ourselves into what and how we address the household of God. I think kind of an interesting thought all of, I'd say almost all of the Apostle Paul's letters that he wrote to the various churches and individuals, they never seemed like they were letters checking up on people. Hey, how are things going to the church at Rome? How are things going, Timothy? They were always addressing issues inside of the church. And I'm sure they caused division. But at times, things have to be said that are uncomfortable. But I hope by reading through this first 13 verses of Romans, chapter 14, that we consider the next time we say something to a brother and sister, is this really important or not? 
that's really, really all I have today. I don't want to go any further into um, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. I won't be here next week. So actually we'll have a guest speaker, Jordan Sauer. He's going to be speaking next week. So be pleased to show up for that. If you have any disagreements or anything, please, uh, or agreements, see me afterwards. And I appreciate your attention. Thank you.